Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I want to talk this morning about the idea of being saved by crimson kindness Saved by crimson kindness. And I'm going to begin by reading this passage, the first 11 verses of John 8, and then we'll dive into the message today. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. May God bless the reading, the hearing the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Let me just make a few comments about this passage in general that uh, I want to just basically give some full disclosure on. So if you were to read a, a contextual note or something of that nature, you wouldn't have reason to speculate about my ignorance thereof. I'm not saying there's something other than brilliance here, but uh, it's just not a complete ignorance. I'll put it like that. Some would argue that this passage is not original to this placement in the gospel of John, that either this passage is altogether written by a different author and has been later inserted, or it wasn't originally in this position in the Gospel of John. And they draw from early manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we have to say this. So in some ways they're right, but here's what I do wanna say to that and talk about why it is that I believe this passage is such a beautiful reprieve for us to study this morning. While it may not be original to John, it doesn't mean it's not true. It fully aligns with the message that John has been sharing with us, and I think in a most helpful position. History does hold that this story is true. So from all the historical accounts that uh, theologians and scholars have brought, this story is held as true. And what this story does is it shows the true nature of God's character through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the point of Scripture, friends. That's the very point of Scripture. It faithfully points us to the one who is merciful to us in our sin and gives forgiveness and cleansing from sin when we believe in him. And friends, that's the reason we preach the gospel through the Bible, through the text of God's written word. And that's why we are studying this passage today. 
If we could go back into the first century, into the time in which this was taking place, it was a blazing inferno of conflict for Jesus. There was never a moment when Jesus wasn't walking into the furnace of people's uh, uh, of antagonism against him, uh, accusations against him, and just tension that they continually brought against him. But it tells us time and time again, in the evening, he would go to the Mount of Olives and spend time with his father in prayer and even sleep there and the next morning he would return to the temple to teach the people who wanted to come and hear him teach and that's what Jesus did Jesus went into the temple and the crowds would swell do you know why the crowds would swell when Jesus taught because he was the living truth of God personified and being proclaimed and there's nothing about truth that doesn't resonate with the very soul and core of our beings when the truth of the creator of the universe speaks and it resonates within us. There's something within us that we don't fully understand. We can't fully comprehend, but we say with all of our being, I love that. I need that. I want that. And that's why the people kept coming. Even those many who didn't fully trust in Jesus. But what the Pharisees, the religious leaders saw was a captive moment to capture this prophet that was stealing their spotlight, so to speak. And so what they did was they brought a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, John records. Their blatant disregard for people And their blatant disregard for God's law is what's most notable in their actions here. And I want to just take a moment and explain and kind of unpack this story before we apply it. Because I think it's so important. Because as we do that, we see how you and I so often live in this story on a daily basis way. You see their blatant disregard for people and their blatant disregard for God by the way that they mishandled his law is most noticeable here, but it's always the way that religion responds within us. Because what religion does is it mishandles God's word that enables a person to disregard other people in order to justify self. That's how religion operates. You see, religion is the proverbial rungs of the ladder that we build to try to get to God. The problem is the rungs never hold us. But we'll use people to build those rungs to try and get our way to God. And that's what our whole study in the Gospel of John has continually shown us, that religion creates this double standard that I can tell you to live one way, but I don't have to live by it myself. And that's how religion does that. And that's what the Pharisees had done. They had caught this woman in the act of adultery. And the way that John writes it, he is telling us that they literally caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, I'm not going to go into detail to describe that for us. Most of us in the room are adults, and the ones that aren't don't need to have that described for them. But here's the question that it does pose to us. Then where is he? Right? And that's the double standard in mishandling people that religion creates. You see, the way that John is telling us this story sets it up to show us that the Pharisees had no intent of bringing him, but they found a woman that was very likely societally on the margins, and they didn't uh, they, they didn't threaten to offend anyone because of the way they handled her. 
And so they allowed the man to escape, but they caught her. And what the Pharisees are showing is, again, how religion always mishandles the scriptures and manipulates it so that it can mishandle and not be uh, having to love people. And then they tell Jesus the law of Moses as if he didn't already know, (laughs) right? Here's what the scripture says. Yes, well, here's who the scripture is, but they didn't get that. And so they're telling him that this woman must be stoned. Now there's two principal wrongs that they commit in this, in the mishandling of people and the mishandling of God's word. First of all, the first wrong, as I've already mentioned, is the man's absence. If they caught her in the act, why didn't they bring him to? And John points this out in such a way to show us that, that more than likely that was an intentional allowance. They let him go because they didn't want to publicly humiliate him. They didn't mind burning her in that way. That was the first way. They treated people wrongly. And the second way was they overstated the woman's punishment. If you do your research on the laws that they're citing here in the situation that she was caught in, there are situations in which that they should be stoned to death because of adultery and the sexual immorality in which she was caught. But the fact of the matter is, didn't have to be. And specifically for this situation, that wasn't the law that would be most applied. And if it was applied it should be applied equally to her and to him and to apply it to one without the other would be the misapplication of the law right an injustice which those who were masters of the law should have known right but you see religion does this thing in our minds and our hearts when it creates a double standard it allows us to do gymnastics with God's word And it allows us to treat people the way we want to treat them that best serves our end and not theirs. But God doesn't treat people that way. Religion loves to adhere to the law in its strictest strictest sense, especially when it deals with people we don't like, right? I mean, there is nothing more satisfying than seeing justice rain down on your enemy, right? You like that. I mean, we, we... There's a way in which we enjoy that, right? But it's dangerous because it appeals to something in us that is not healthy at all. And so the Pharisees look at Jesus and they ask him, what do you say? And John gives us insight to why they ask him this. What was their real purpose? They were asking this to test him, to try and tempt him to see if he would mishandle the law as well. That woman was just a pawn in religion's game. You see, religion, friends, no matter how faithful people adhere to it, it destroys people and then it discards them as human waste to justify self. That's how religion operates. But Jesus responds brilliantly. It says he bent down and began to write in the sand with his finger. If you want two verses that confound scholars, maybe more than any other in all of scriptures, it's these two verses that tell us before he addressed the crowd and after he addressed the crowd, he bent down and wrote in the ground. And they simply say, what was he writing? What was he saying? What could possibly he have been putting in the dirt? Say, well, if it mattered, we would have been told right? You know what I think Jesus was doing? I think Jesus was not responding by reciting his thoughts and capturing them in the dirt so he could have notes to look at like I need. 
But rather, I think what Jesus was saying was, look, you're not going to intimidate me. You see, people who are power hungry want to demand that you respect their power. And when you don't respect their power, the greatest insult to power is not to overwhelm it or overcome it. That just puts them in their place, but it will swell again. It's to ignore them as if it's not there at all. And when the Pharisees flex their religious muscle, Jesus goes, I'll deal with you if I want to, but only if I choose to. Because I don't have to do anything for you. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's simply saying, I'm going to bend down and I'm going to write in the dirt. You're not going to know what I say and it's going to confound you scholars for centuries upon end until we get into heaven and I'll tell you then what I wrote. And what I tell you then is it doesn't matter what I wrote, it matters what I was doing. See, religion destroys people and then discards them as human waste. But Jesus doesn't regard religion the way we so often regard it, and especially when it is misused. Actually, when he responds to them the first time, he agrees with them in one way. But what he tells them is the sentence that they pass on this woman will actually say more about them than it will about her. Interesting, isn't it, when the rat gets caught in his own trap? And here's what he says to them. Yes, you may stone her. She's been caught red-handed, right? And the first one that can throw a stone is who? The one who is without sin. Friends, this is very insightful for our hearts here and something we need to see. Uh, it, it says this, that the older people in the crowd dropped their stones first and walked away. I think that's insightful too because youthfulness can be a little overzealous at times, right? To do things that maybe... On second thought, you wouldn't have done, but you didn't give it a first thought, so you went ahead and did it. Or to say things that you wouldn't have said had you thought about it at all, but it didn't pass your brain. It just came right out over the tongue and the lips, and you said it. But, you know, you live a few years, you learn a few lessons, right? And, and sometimes it might just be age. It goes, man, every time I draw my arm up to throw, it hurts. I'm, I'm going to think about this for a minute before I throw the stone. I don't know why it was that the older people dropped their stones first. But I do know this. They dropped their stones first. But one by one, kaplink, 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 stones started hitting the ground. And the crowd started thinning out until no one was left that day. You see, friends, what Jesus does is he just exposes the uselessness of religion, the uselessness of it. Religion makes one feel so justified in condemning others, but the problem is that it blinds us and it deceives us in regards to our own sin. That's why when we go through motions but we do it without any regard, without any affection, without any intellect, without any engagement with God through his word, but we just go through the motions that we think we're supposed to go through. That's what they were. The Pharisees were going through the motions that they thought they were supposed to go through, but they were doing it without regard for God. What happens is we get blinded and deceived by our motions and we cannot see the intents of our own heart. 
And that's how religion damns us. Jesus immediately bends down again and begins to write in the sand. And everyone walks away until it's just he and this woman. I'm telling you, there, there are other places in the scripture that demonstrate this. But there are none more poignant to answer the question, how does God see me in my sin, than these verses right here. You want to know how it is that God sees you when you are caught red-handed in your sin? Here it is, friends. This is the way God responds to you. This is what God wants you to know about him and about his love for you. And it says, is there no one left to condemn you? And she says, no, they're all gone. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a beautiful picture, friends. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, of the good news that we have from God in Jesus Christ. You see, sin's condemnation never stands a chance when Jesus shows up. That's the beauty of this. Religion amplifies in us that voice of accusation against us until it's just a a burning within us that says, guilty, guilty, you are guilty. And it shows to us how guilty we really are in our sin. And the weight of the condemnation with every statement of guilt sits heavier and heavier upon us. And we try to work our way out of it by the things that we do, trying to overbalance our wrongs with more and more good. But we find that the scales do not equal in any way and we cannot overcome the wrong that we've done. And that's what every person on this day came to realize because Jesus said anyone who is without sin throw your stone and no one no one threw a stone not because Jesus told him not to he gave him the green light did he not just one qualification if you throw it then you testify that your heart is perfect and no one would say that of their own heart. Friends, listen. Jesus silences sin's accusation and he lifts the weight of its condemnation. Jesus is never soft on sin, but he is always kind and patient towards sinners. That's what God wants you to know today. That's what God wants you to hear in your heart and in your life today. People often impose religion's reaction to sin on God. You think about sin and how God responds to sin. And what do we think? We think God's the one standing there with the stone ready to throw, right? But God tells us in this passage that he loves sinners and he wants none to perish but all to come to eternal life. That he is patient. And you see, no matter who you are and no matter where you find yourself today, but especially if you feel the heavy weight, the crushing load of sin's condemnation, if you hear the burning accusation of sin's accusing you in your heart and it's intensifying in you, I want you to listen to God today and to know what he wants you to know about him and how he sees you. 
That's what this passage is all about. Jesus gives the hope of eternal life through his crimson kindness. Now, I call it crimson kindness because it's made possible by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus died on the cross to show that God is kind towards sinners. And Revelation tells us that by his blood, he purchased sinners for God with his blood, that he might give them redemption. Jesus came into the world on a, an internal shopping spree, purchasing by his blood sinners for full redemption with God. Friends, the greatest place that we can be this morning before God is on the ground, caught red-handed, because that is true of us, and it puts us in a perfect place to learn what is true of God. That's what God wants you to see today. There is hope, because all who believe in Jesus are saved by his crimson Kindness, kindness that was purchased by the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. I want you to see this morning that Jesus commends those condemned in sin with crimson kindness to believe for eternal life. I want to share four truths with you that reveal God's mercy towards sinners and God's desire to show grace and give life. The first truth that we see in this passage is simply this, that the law condemns all as red-handed, guilty sinners. I looked up this phrase for this sermon and did a little research on it. The, the phrase uh, red-handed, caught red-handed, is, is actually derives from the early 15th century in Scotland. And it was a phrase that they coined in order to establish the standard by which a sheriff had to catch a person in the crime act in order to convict them and cause them to be guilty of the crime. It was the crime of murder. And if he caught them with blood on their hands from the victim, then they would be convicted. If there was no blood on their hands, then they couldn't be caught or convicted. And so we have coined this phrase that they uh, used and we have taken it and we understand what it means to be caught red-handed, whether our hands have any red on them or not. And what the scripture tells us is that we are all red-handed, guilty sinners. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, there's no question about that. Listen, the testimony of the stoneholders on this day testify to our own hearts and what we know to be true. When all is said and done at the end of the day and it's just me and the mirror and I look in the mirror, I know that if my hand has the residue of a stone, I had to drop that stone because I wasn't qualified to be able to cast it at the one that they were claiming was red-handed in her guilt. And the Pharisees' voice on this day that say, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Their voices help us to understand how it is that the voice of sin in our heart and in our head condemn us as well and accuse us. You see, sin condemns every person. Why? Because we're guilty. We're guilty. And some would say, well, 
you know, I, I, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. Here's what you just did. You went from eternity and spirituality and, and uh, 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 those things that the scripture addresses as our ultimate need to morality and measured by comparison. This is measured against God's standard, his law, his holiness, his righteousness. This is measured by looking out in the crowd and going, well, I can find one of you that's better, but I can find a whole lot more that are worse right? And we want to stand before God and go, I don't want to deal with that, but let me talk about this. And we want to beckon against God's holiness and righteousness with our morality when we know that even that is flawed, at best flawed, and completely dependent upon whether or not we're having a good day or a bad day. You see, religion addresses morality Jesus addresses eternity. And that's why we don't need to be confused about this. What the law says is that we are all guilty of sin. The difficulty is not to find one that's guilty, but rather understanding that just because another is guilty doesn't mean that our guilt before God is erased. Don't we like to do the sleight of hand? See, the problem with that is this. God's not in the business of calling sinners Well, I found one that's worse. I'm going to let you go back so they can take your place, right? That's what you do. You call. You keep them in the live well, hold them at bay until you find one that's, you know, more for what you're looking for. And God says, well, you got lucky on this one. That's the way we conceptualize God. No, God is in the business of saving, of redeeming sinners. And all people are sinners and in need of a Savior. We often treat sin today worse than even the, uh, the Pharisees did in this day, though. Familiarity with adultery, familiarity with fornication has bred what I call acceptance by normality. Acceptance by normality. And this is true for those who claim to be Christians as well, who re-image sexual immorality for acceptableness in our day and time. We've become hesitant to hold any measure of strong disdain or even hatred for the moral repulsiveness with which Scripture addresses sexual immorality. Well, you know, ah, you know, I don't want to, I mean, you know, I don't know that that, that is quite that. You see, the problem is this. We've made sexual immorality an indiscretion when God called it an abomination. And that's what we do with sin. We make light of our sin and we make little of God. And anytime we make light of sin, we're making little of God. And anytime we make little of God, we're making light of sin. But when we see God for who he is, it doesn't matter how small we've measured our sin. It is a blathosphere, an absolute bottomless pit of hopelessness and helplessness before God. Friends, be careful that you do not convince yourself of this deception that is so common and familiar. God is not less offended by your sin than by the sin of any other just because you are less offended by it or you've learned to tolerate it. Just because you can point to someone else who might be more morally lower than you or have committed more moral indiscretions than you've committed, God's not distracted by your state before him either. But that's what, we, that's what religion tries to do. Measures morality 
to do the bait and switch, the sleight of hand movement, to maybe God will forget about our indiscretions and only remember our goodnesses. The fact of the matter is our goodnesses don't stack up as high as we've conceived them to stack up. And too often among Christians, we give grace, what we call grace, it's not biblical grace, but we call it grace. We give it so freely that it literally paves a path for people to walk into or to continue to live in their immorality. And we just tell God he's going to have to take it and deal with it. Christianity has become far too comfortable with and far too casual about sexual immorality in its every form, friends. We are all guilty before God. We are hopeless and we are helpless, imprisoned by sin. We don't need self-help. We don't need self-improvement. We need a Savior. And I want you to see today how it is that the Savior waits for you. And that's the second truth we see. Everybody on that day deserved to die. Just like everybody in the room today deserves to die because of our sin. But here's the second truth we see. Jesus is merciful to show patience towards sinners. So so much good can be learned from Jesus' response here, right? The argument was set forth and instead of running in to correct everyone, Jesus knelt down and didn't say anything to anybody. You know, ignoring useless accusation is often the best way to avoid getting trapped in pointless arguments. Remember that this afternoon when you're flipping through your newsfeed. For me, it just simply says, but they need to know what's right. That's why I need to respond. And that's usually the sign that goes, click off lane. Get out, run, run from yourself. Jesus demonstrates God's patience towards sinners, all sinners, not just some, but all. You see, God is not waiting with bottled up anger to demonstrate his aggressive nature. Rather, God sits patiently waiting for you to recognize where you are in your sin, that he might show his kindness through mercy to you. In your sin. This is how God meets all who are guilty in sin. Listen to his words in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, do you want to understand God? No. People in this world, even that claim his name, are not perfect at representing God. That's a fact. But let's move beyond that because no one is without sin before God. But this is the way God wants you to understand how he sees you in your sin. He is patient with you, merciful to you. And the kindness that he gives in his patience to you has a purpose for it. And that purpose is that you might see your hopeless and helpless state in your sin and turn to him to trust him. Jesus is kind to you today, friend, waiting patient for you to turn from your sin. You see, sometimes we feel like if we have a near miss, well, we got out of it. 
That will never happen again, right? And then, but a short time later, we find ourselves right back in. Oh, how did this happen again? Oh, another near miss. Good. And all the while, if we don't repent of our sin that got us there and turn and trust in Jesus, then what happens is we begin to think, hey, I've gotten pretty good at Dodge, right? I've gotten pretty good at getting out of my sin. And, and we begin to be a little deceived and blinded by that. And unless we believe that Jesus' kindness, friends, is in any way accepting or tolerating of our sin, here's what we also need to see. The third truth that Scripture presents to us is this. Jesus is the judge, and judgment of sin should be left to him. Now, this whole idea of judgment is likely the most misunderstood and incorrectly applied of all the biblical teachings. But here's what Jesus does tell us about judging. We are not to judge unless we want to be judged by the same wrong standard. So the next time you're tempted to judge someone in your heart, in your mind, just remember this. You're writing the script for how you want to be judged in life. That's a pretty good way to go, you know, I can let this one go, right? I I, I mean, I don't want to have to live up to the standard that I impose on other people. (laughs) Good grief. Who would want to live up to that, right? That's what Jesus tells us. We're not to judge unless we want to be judged by the same standard that we impose upon them. We are not to judge the law, God's word, or to discredit it. Because when we judge the word, when we go, man, this is what the Bible says, but I just don't know if I like that. I don't even know if I agree with that. I'm not sure it's true. I mean, I think we can just, you know, just do away with that and everything else will be fine. When we begin to do that, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, that we don't just judge a book, but we judge the author of that book. In other words, we become the judge of God. And when we judge others, we claim something about ourselves that we, in fact, know is not true. Either throw the stone or don't. But when you don't throw it or when you throw it, you make a statement more about yourself than you do about the one you throw it at. And when we fail to call sin, sin, as God calls it, we simply say that, well, God's not true. He missed that one. It's okay. I'm gracious. I'm going to let God go on that one. No, friends, no. When we are honest with ourselves, we cannot deny our conscience that we too are sinners with no right justification to cast the first stone of judgment on anyone. But you see, Jesus didn't come into the world to judge. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus goes on to say, for I didn't come into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. Why? Because the world people are already condemned in their sin. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to bring salvation. He doesn't have to judge why he's on earth because we are already condemned, judged under our sin. But those who believe in him are set free from that condemnation. So God sent Jesus that the world might be saved through him. You see, there will be a right time for judgment. And at that time, every sentence will have a period put at the end of it. Every word will end with an ED as in past tense. 
Why? Because that's the way that God has ordained time to work. And when Jesus comes, he will judge both the living, those who are alive at that time, and he will judge those who have already passed into death at those times. He will judge the eternal state of their souls as determined by what they have done with him. And he will judge with righteousness and he will judge with holiness. And those who have not believed in him, the scripture is clear, will go to a place of eternal damnation and separation from God. And those who have trusted in him will go to a place of eternal life with God. Listen, there is no everybody wins in the end. Where you go, when God puts the period at the end of the sentence, will be determined by what you did with Jesus when you walked on the face of this earth. You either trusted him or you rejected him. And that's why today is so important. That's why scripture says today is the day of salvation because you have no guarantee about tomorrow. When Jesus speaks, that's the moment to respond. You see, judging is Jesus' work, though, not ours. We should carefully note how it is that Jesus deals with sin. What does he do? He, he disarms its power. Don't you love this? Before he ever even acknowledged the woman laying on the ground in front of him where the religion had thrown her. What a picture that is of how religion treats people. Exposed, cast down, totally cast off. What does Jesus do? He doesn't even address her. He looks at the accusation and the voice of sin and he silences it and he removes its condemnation and then he speaks to her. That's such a beautiful picture and that's what he does to us in the gospel. Sin holds no sway with Jesus. He will not be intimidated by it because he has completely conquered it. It is powerless with him. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? Your stinger's been plucked. You got nothing. Jesus has judged sin and he has come to save sinners. Listen to Romans 8 verses 1 and 2. This is the hope of Jesus that he wants us to see in his kindness that demonstrated through his mercy. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This promise reminds us why it is that God is patient with us. God is patient with you in your sin because he wants to save you. That's why. When we believe in Jesus, we are set free from sin's condemnation. So it causes us to ask then why would God be patient with sinners? If sinners break his holy law, if sinners accurse his righteousness, why would he be patient Here's the fourth truth. God shows mercy to sinners that he might give grace for full forgiveness when we believe in Jesus. You see, Jesus is merciful with sinners to show God's kindness that we might be moved by it to full repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is to turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. What did Jesus tell the woman caught in adultery? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Morality and religion would tell her, try harder and you're not sinning. 
And she's got maybe an hour before it actually happens. Maybe a moment that fleets quickly. But what Jesus is saying is, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. So that she could see in her own strength, in her own will, even in her own affection, she would never be able to accomplish perfection or the lack of sin. But rather she could only turn to him and beckon upon his mercy. And hear me. His mercy that releases her from sin's condemnation and accusation so that she could receive by God's grace his full forgiveness and cleansing. Friends, that's why God is merciful to you in your sin. Because he has something much greater to bestow upon you that you will never accomplish for yourself, but you don't have to. He stands ready to give it to you for you in what he's done. He's done it on the cross and he wants to give it to you today that it might be an inheritance that never fades, that never passes, but that lasts for all eternity. It is a life that you've longed for, but you've never reached and will never reach on your own. But you don't have to achieve it. All you have to do is receive it. Those near misses were not because you knew how to dodge them. God is merciful and kind, patiently waiting on you to turn and come back to him and to say, God, only by your grace. Friends, don't confuse God's mercy with the full pardon. God's mercy leads to forgiveness, but it's never a freedom to continue in sin. God shows mercy to win our trust in him for eternal life. He gives victory over sin. Friends, you want to know how to stop the voice of burning accusation from sin in your heart? Do you want to know how to remove the weight of sin's condemnation and just the guilt that sits in every time and gets heavier and heavier? God gives victory completely over sin through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's why his kindness is wrought in crimson blood. God never throws out the law to bring forgiveness. Don't don't make this mistake either. God's law said death is what she deserves because of her sin. God's law says you and I deserve death because of our sin. How how then could God respond in any other way? Do Do you remember the passage we read from Romans 3 during the song service? He is just. That means he is righteous. He is holy. But what is he also? He is the justifier of those who by faith believe in him. I'm telling you, God takes you out of your imperfection and he puts Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfection on you. When God sees a sinner who by faith is living in Jesus, he sees his son's sacrifice in your place. Jesus died a death that you could not die, but you don't have to die because he died it for you. And when by faith you enter into the death of Jesus, God has no wrath for sin any longer. He has only love that he waits to lavish and pour out upon you every day, every moment as you will receive it by faith and walk in him. Jesus said go and sin no more. And that was an invitation to that woman. It was an invitation to any who would have stayed there and dropped their stone to listen. It's an invitation to you and to I today to turn away from our sin and to walk by faith in Jesus. Listen to Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's been good to you, friends. Whether you're a Christian or whether you feel like you're the furthest person away from God this morning, your presence here today says one thing. God would have been fully justified to remove you, but he's been patient with you. Will you not beckon upon his mercy, but respond to his mercy to repent and turn to him and receive his grace today? Jesus commends those condemned in sin with crimson kindness to believe for eternal life. As the worship team returns, I, I want to share one more passage of scripture with you. I love it when we can look back in the Old Testament and see that the God who is is the God who's always been. And here's what God says. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Would you pray with me?